This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Welcome to the final ATP Tennis Radio podcast from Roland Garros, where Rafael Nadal has made history. By beating Novak Djokovic to win his 100th match at Roland Garros, Nadal has equaled Roger Federer's record of 20 Grand Slam singles titles. Hello, I'm Chris Bowers. With me is Sophie Amiach, former French Fed Cup player, now lives in America, and uh, we're sitting underneath Court 5 at Roland Garros as they start to dismantle the uh, facilities around us. But that was just a quite remarkable performance by Rafael Nadal. 6-love, six 6-2, six seven five, And I don't think Djokovic even played that badly. No, seven, uh, seven games only for Djokovic. And you look at the stats, it's just unimaginable. Two unforced errors in the first set, four in the second, eight in the third for Rafael Nadal for a total of, if my math is correct, 14. Um... It's ridiculous. It's like looking at somebody who's giving a clinic on clay, knowing exactly what he's doing, when he's doing it, and playing the most important point much better than his opponent. And I, I agree with you. Everybody was saying, oh, it's a horrible match. I watched the first set on court, then I moved around. Six love, and I can tell you that the six love is has nothing to do with the score line. It was so close on points won and point lost. And the, the differential of point one to Nadal were not that many considering the amount of games that he won considering he won all six of them I mean for me it you're right about the maths but the unforced errors when I saw 14 I thought that is an absolutely brutal statistician who's actually recorded that because I watched that match and yeah there were a few more in the third set but unforced errors no I mean some of those they were counting I was watching them he was hitting forehands on the run at full stretch, which were then going out, and they were counting as unforced errors. So for me, I would say actually six or eight. Yeah, I mean, I have to agree with it. It's difficult to really get those stats because sometimes, you know, you don't know who's behind the stats maker. But uh, let's talk about the five-love lead in the first set when Nadal, I think it was on set point, hits a striking back-end cross-court winner, mag two. I mean, completely left Djokovic just in the middle of the court going... Really? And this is pretty much what we all said, really, throughout the match, because he was just, you know, so much better, but yet really winning the points after long rallies and coming up with incredible stamina throughout the match. I thought Djokovic started the match well. I mean, he was up 40-15 in the first game, gets broken. He was up 15-40 on the, on the serve of Rafael Nadal. Just couldn't get to the finish line when he had the opportunity. What struck me most about the um, Nadal game was that he wasn't just retrieving balls from seemingly impossible positions. When he retrieved them, he would put them in almost the perfect position. Frequently at full stretch, he would slice and it would get to the back of Djokovic's court. And I'm thinking to myself, 
well, what can Djokovic do? He can get in, surely. And then Djokovic would play a really good flat into out forehand or a backhand down the line. And Nadal was there again and placed the ball absolutely in the right place. This is why I say, although there is no such thing as a perfect match, it was as close as you can get. It was pretty close to a perfect match. I mean, we know what a perfect match might be as far as score-wise, you know, love, love and love. But this is not about, you know, a perfect match score-wise. It was a perfect match for Nadal because not only that, he's thinking out there constantly. So let's say, you know, he wins the first set six love. You think, oh, okay, he can't really get any better because, you know, what is he going to change? Well, he did actually change things. And one of the things that he changed is that when Djokovic was drop shotting, I don't know if you remember, Nadal would get to it with his backhand and go down the line. And then all of a sudden he's like, you know what, I'm not winning that many points going down the line. I get lobs, you know, the lob often from the racket of Djokovic. So about two or three later and starting in the second set, when Djokovic drop shot to the backhand, where did he go? Cross court, behind Djokovic's body. And he did it twice. And it was almost, I looked at it the second time, I'm like, is this the replay from the other one? It was not. It was just a different time. And winning the shot at the point with clean winners frequently just by fooling Djokovic. I mean, you mentioned about Djokovic playing the drop shot um, and then Nadal running it down and Djokovic lobbing Nadal. But even then, Nadal was not necessarily losing the points because he would throw up the lob. And I felt that he made a maximum use of the one weakness in the Djokovic game, which is he's not clinical on his smash. I agree with you. It's not clinical in this match because, you know, for Djokovic, he's like, okay, normally I win the point on the lob. Now I'm getting to hit another ball and maybe another ball behind it because I can't put the smash away. And, and it's it was seen many times during the rallies. You know, and then after that, I mean, there's, you know, the fact that I think also he changed his position, Nadal, in the return serve. He was much closer. I don't know if you remember, but he used to be much closer to the Lacoste sign, you know, where, where the player, where the, the Lions people are standing. As team is sometimes, and you, f- you you just can't find Dominic team on on the screen, even on TV. You have to take a you know a big shot of it. But I think that the fact that he was closer inside the court gave even less time on the return for Djokovic to get organized. So let's have a look at this in a historic context. First of all, the match itself. I mean, I saw. Nadal beat Federer for the loss of just four games back in the final of 2008. I thought Nadal played better today. Oh, yeah, but I think the conditions were better. I think, you know, the fact that they closed the roof, I thought it was really strange, actually, to close the roof because, to tell you the truth, it took 10 minutes for, for the sky to clear. Uh, strangely, they decided to play it indoors. They couldn't open it after you close it. You have to finish the match that way. Uh, but I think, yeah, he played. The conditions were not as heavy than when he played Federer. When it was outside, no roof, weather was really tricky, and the ball was were heavier. I think, in a way, I think it helped Nadal to be indoors, which you would think, oh, it's going to help Djokovic as well. But I think the dry condition and and the fact that the ball was really coming out of the of the Nadal. I mean, in the first set, I didn't see any balls of his landing in the service line area. It was so deep. You know, he did kind of like ha- had a little bit of a letdown at the beginning of the second, where all of a sudden he played shorter, but then it took no no time for him to realize it. I mean, the fact that he was able, as soon as he thought and he saw that something was not going well, to completely focus on that and say, you know what, I'm keeping track. I need to really come on the drop shot and go cross court. I need to play deeper on the court. That's how I won the first set. I mean, it's it's just amazing that he can have that, you know, ability to be so clear-minded when he's going for his 13th major here at Roland Garros. 
So he's now level with Roger Federer on 20 major titles. That, of course, begs the question about the greatest of all time. First of all, is it right that we link the greatest of all time just to the number of Grand Slam singles titles or other, other elements? And secondly, is Nadal an equal, given that 13 of his 20 majors have been on one distinctive surface? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's all about what you define the greatest of all time. And, uh, you know, I think for me, it's to be able to play on all four surfaces uh, at the time, you know, especially when it was on grass in the, in the Australian Open. It was only two surfaces, three surfaces, sorry. Now today, it's four surfaces. And I think it makes a difference if you win all four. To me, it's, it, it, I have to give more of an asterisk to, towards those players that did that, uh, as it is very, very difficult. Um, and then you go from that and you go, OK, well, how many did you win? You know, and that's they all pretty much at that stage. You know, it's like, OK, we won Wimbledon. We want every one of them. So then you have to go with the numbers uh, and the numbers will tell at the end of their career. I mean, they're still playing all of them. And Federer is doesn't you know, he's yet to retire. So we have to be careful. He's still a dangerous man on, on grass, especially. I mean, you never know. We'll be hearing actually shortly from Pete Sampras, uh, who uh, we've got to talk about clay, but he also weighs in on the debate about the greatest of all time. But let's just um, raise the subject of Novak Djokovic, because he's had the most remarkable year, apart from the disqualification in uh, New York. He hadn't lost a completed match until today. He's still considerably ahead at the top of the rankings because Nadal was a defending champion, so he's just defended his points from last year. But... Where does this leave Djokovic in terms of his standing, not just on 17 Grand Slam singles titles, but has this changed his year? No, I don't think this changed his year. I mean, he had, like you mentioned, he only really lost one completed match in the season. And uh, you have to look at Djokovic as, you know what, I'm the youngest one. That's it. He's looking at, you know, Nadal and Federer. And he knows that, you know, for him, he's got at least a lot more time than those guys. Uh, and that's the only way that he can look at it. And by having more time means I have at least eight to 12, you know, majors to play. And I'm not sure how many they have. But we've seen Dominic Team enter the Grand Slam role of honour. Um, Tsitsipas is clearly getting closer. Zverev's been in a final. Um, we've got other players looking, you know, Rublev needs to crack it. Medvedev is still up there. Do you not think that next year there will be that much more competition uh, when we get to Australia and the, the Masters 1000s events than there has been this year? Yeah, but the competition was there in Australia and he answered correctly. So I think that for me, you know, yeah, it's obviously going to be difficult, but uh, I think that, again, he's younger than the two best players out there, which were Federer and and Nadal, who really dominating the last, you know, 10, 15 years of of this tour. So I would look at it as, hey... Great, bring it on, and uh, it's going to be tougher, there's no doubt, because of all the young guns. Let's just have a quick word about the other champions here. The women's champion, Iga Sviontek, uh, big congratulations to her. Now, she comes from a country where they've had Grand Slam champions in the past, in particular uh, on the men's side, Lucas Kubot, and uh, go back to the 70s, and Wojtek Fieback, and other players as well. Agnieszka Radvanska got to the Wimbledon final, but... Winning a Grand Slam singles title, that could open up um, this already fairly developed tennis country to all sorts of youngsters wanting to prioritise tennis, boys and girls, in Poland. 
Yeah, we see this happening in every country, small countries uh, in Europe, because, and, and even, you know, you look at China, I mean, with, with Nali, I mean, you know that this was the reason that all of a sudden you have so many Chinese players playing on the tour. I think it's wonderful to have somebody, you know, winning for your country. It's going to bring other players, other kids, other, you know, young, you know, women out there saying, oh, I want to be that. I want to get there. I, I know it's possible now because, well, one of us did it. Uh, so, yeah, I love to have, you know, this happening for Poland. And I think Iga Shrantek is a great ambassador uh, for this uh, sport. She's a very delightful young young woman at 19 years old, um, you know, head on the shoulder, seems to have a good, you know, good people around her. And um, looking forward to see how the continuity is going to be because hopefully, you know, the stress of winning, you know, a major is not going to be too heavy for her and that she's going to continue and and do great and maybe break the top 10 as she's probably around 17 after this ranking comes out next week. Quick word about the doubles. There was no mixed doubles at this Roland Garros. That was dropped as part of the reshaped tournament. Uh, the women's doubles was won by Kristina Mladenovic and Tomeo Babos. Mladenovic made a very emotional speech on the trophy ceremony, given that they were not allowed to play their second round match at the US Open because of quarantine restrictions after they were allowed to play their first round. And the men's doubles was won by uh, Kevin Kravitz and Andreas Mies, the German pair who broke onto the scene when they won this tournament last year. And although they're not home and dry yet, they're in a very very good position to qualify for the ATP finals in London. I thought this was a very, very good doubles competition, men's and women's, but in particular the men's. Yeah, I mean, it was great for them, to, the, the men's doubles, to qualify and, and to be close to getting into the O2. And, you know, it's it's only, you know, what you expect when you do so well, when you keep at it. I love to see, you know, those teams, they're sticking together, you know, creating bonds between each other. I mean, you saw that speech with Babos and Mladenovic. I mean, uh, Kiki was in tears just thanking, you know, Timea for supporting her because she went through really a lot of things, you know, from the U.S. Open being uh, sequestered, you know, in her room for so many, uh, so many days. And, and she said if it wasn't for, for Timea and how she was supportive and positive, you know, she doesn't think she would make it. So, um, you know, I wish that we had with the women a also a, a final with the finals, which are, have been cancelled in Shenzhen, unfortunately. But for the men's, you know, creating opportunity for, you know, Mies and, and Krasvitz, I think it's it's fabulous as well. And uh, they deserve to be in the, in the O2 without a doubt. Well, in a few moments, Sophie and I will look back at some of the talking points from this most unique of Grand Slam tournaments. But before we do, let's hear from one of the legends of our sport, Pete Sampras, who never came to terms with Clay, certainly not at Roland Garros. His best was a run to the semi-finals in 1996. So here's the 2004 semi-finalist, Tim Henman, who very much did come to terms with Clay, discussing with Sampras why he never mastered the red dirt. And Henman also got him to weigh in on the greatest of all time debate. Another element of your career, we've we've focused on a, a few high points, a couple of low points. I'm interested on um, on if you if you break down your clay court game, and yes. and then to sort of uh, in hindsight analyze it, what would you do differently? I would I wish I was a little more open to some te- you know some uh, racket change, using a bigger racket. So a little bit of technology with the strings and. You know, I used a, a very small head with a very tight strings, you know, 80 pounds. And as you know, you know, it's when these guys are spinning you off the court, you know, you just felt like you're always on your heels. Um, that being said, I, I wish I was a little more open to that. 
you know, I felt I put a little too much pressure on myself at the French. You know, I felt the anxiety. I felt like this is the one major I won. I tried different things, try, you know, sort of staying in Europe for two months to play on clay. Uh, that didn't work out. Uh, I had one, one year there where I got to the semis, but I just uh, didn't move as well. I didn't cover the net as well. My, my serve wasn't as effective. Um, you know, I tried staying back some, I tried coming in. It just, it didn't click, you know, but I, I just felt anxiety there. I felt nerve, I felt like it just wasn't a natural play on clay, on grass or hardcore. You know, I, I play one speed and I go. And clay, I just felt like I was a little confused. It's an interesting one because, um, you know, at that time, everyone, well, the, the, the majority of people were still using natural gut. And, yep. and the balls, that Roland Garros ball was, was so hard and so fast. Yeah. And, you know, in the hot conditions, if you were, for you, if you were serving well, it's pretty difficult to, to sort of get away from that. And, and I, I guess that sort of stubborn streak is yes. a huge threat. But, yes. you know, in hindsight, you know, we've seen Federer, you know, go to a, you know, slightly bigger racket. It would just give me a little bit more margin for error. You know, especially on the high backhands, you know, you get, it's the toughest shot for one-handers and those guys would take advantage of it against me and have a little more help, I think would have been nice, but it just wasn't meant to be at the front. You know, moving the, the conversation towards those three, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, but in your crystal ball, um, who's going who's gonna to finish with the most slams out of those three? That's a, that's a very tough question. Um, I, I, you know, Novak and Rafa being younger than Roger, you know, who knows how much longer Roger's going to play. He's, you know, if, if Novak plays another five years and Rafa, I mean, they could very easily pass 20. You know, I know Roger that 20, um, but they got to do it. Yeah. It, it, you know, I, it, it's, you know, Rafa will, you know, as long as he's playing the French for the next couple, he could win those and maybe another open and, and I think Roger can still win another major. You know, I'm not sure this long break will help, but uh, it could help. I'd agree with your point about the age and, you know, with, with Novak, especially Novak, I think, uh, you know, Rafa has had more physical issues. I think he's more susceptible to injuries. And so when you look at Novak's physique, you look at his age, you look at how dominant, you know, over five sets, I, I, I think he's such a difficult proposition uh, to beat. And so um, I, I had to name one, I, I'd go Djokovic. I mean, he's winning everywhere. So you're right. I mean, I, I not to disrespect Roger and Rafa, I just, I do think Djokovic, if things go well for him and he stays physically and mentally fit in the next three, four years, he could very well do it. Pete Sampras talking with Tim Henman there about the difficulties of playing on clay. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio podcast, the final podcast from Roland Garros with me, Chris Bowers, and I still have Sophie Amiak with me. Sophie Sampras said that he was anxious and confused when he played at Roland Garros. Do you understand that? Oh, yes, and at least he's honest. Okay, a lot of them probably would say and find excuses, but he was confused, and, you know, there's reasons to be confused. I mean, it's a guy who's been, you know, learning to play on hard court and has had, you know, significant uh, wins, uh, you know, at Wimbledon and on the hard courts. I think for him, clay was a foreign surface, and uh, the fact that he was really not somebody who learned how to really slide, which is on clay one of the major movements that you have to know if you want to play on the surface, and then on the other hand, I'm not sure how much he put everything behind him coaching-wise and the time spent before the tournaments at Roland Garros. 
have, has he played enough tournaments to come into Roland Garros? I mean, those are questions, you know, that you ask yourself. Did he put the effort? Did he put his mind into it as much as maybe other players who might not like the surface but have been here? Yeah, but he was good friends with Jim Courier at the start of his career. Courier made the effort to learn. Michael Chang won here in 1989, the year before Sampras won his first uh, Grand Slam title at the US Open. So he had people around him who, who made the efforts to be Americans who could play in Paris. Yeah, but the difference is that his game was not suited for Clay as a courier, probably more suited to Clay. I think Chang, without a doubt, more suited to Clay. So you go to some, some a guy who's, mean, you know... His, his tennis is all based really on his serve, his volley. Uh, for him to play on the clay, and at the time was, I think, much slower. Um, very, very difficult tournament for him. And that, to me, doesn't surprise me that he never, he never was able to win here. He was essentially a hard quarter and a grass quarter. Do you think that these days there aren't the specialist clay quarters that actually everybody just plays a bit the way they play on hard court with a little bit of sliding? Well, we know one specialist. <laughs> So, um, you know, what I'm thinking about this is that, yes, I think a lot of the players are playing on hard court. I think Sofia, uh, a.k.a. Sonia Kennan, played on hard court when she was at the beginning of the tournament and then, you know, slowly but surely starting to play more cross-court shorts, you know, play instead of being so linear and playing too much down the line. Um, you know, and I think she got better until, you know, the end of the tournament, until she faced adversity. So we get to the end of the Grand Slam season where we've only had three of the four tournaments this year and we end on the clay when we normally end on the hard. Whose stock has risen, do you think, you know, at the end of the Grand Slam season and in particular at the end of the US Open and French? Well, number one, you have to give it to Dominic Team winning his first ever major at the US Open. Couldn't go all the way here because, well, I think that maybe he was a little bit tired, especially mentally after what he had to give to win that to set down against Verev in the final of the U.S. Open. But what I love to see in this tournament here at Roland Garros is Hugo Gaston. I mean, to me, um, I mean, of course, I'm a little biased because I'm French, but the match that he had, I mean, just beating Vavrinka when nobody thought that he could have even win a set. And then what he did after that against team, and it was so close, um, and I think also put a touch on the touch, the tournament shot, the drop shot. I mean, that was, to me, spectacular to go back to seeing drop shots the way that it used to be. Uh, because of the surface, the slowness a little bit of the court, and the balls being a little bit heavier. I love that shot. I'm in love with that shot, so... And is that a development in tennis? Do you think this fortnight has made people realise that they can make more use of the drop shot or do you think that this was just a, a special set of circumstances given that we had Roland Garros so late in the season? I think it started a while ago uh, to uh, reappear on the tour, women's and men's. Uh, and I think it's because of the fact that a lot of the players, especially on the women's tour, were hitting a lot of harder balls, more uh, flatter balls. For them, with the power that they had, it had you know it had to come along that at some point they were going to use that shot. Uh, and I think developing a, a slice, especially on the back inside when you have a two-hander, is much more difficult to hit a slice drop shot because you don't have as much feel as somebody with a one-hander. Uh, but I think they're all developing this shot. I think it's taught now a lot more with the young kids, uh, as well as the slice back end. And uh, you know it's been working. We're going to see. We're going to keep seeing it. And you think Gaston's the real deal? I mean, we've seen plenty of players who have a, a, a good Grand Slam tournament. He came through qualifying and won three rounds. But to what extent do you see this as a player who could really establish himself on the ATP Tour as opposed to somebody who's just had a really good tournament? 
Well, to me, any players, and French players for that matter, who do well at the French Open at Roland Garros, I look at them as saying uh, they're the real deal because the pressure is huge. Even though you're young, you're coming from nowhere, there were not that much you know, uh, crowd here at Roland Garros this year, but there were a lot of attention made in the press and for him to be everywhere on every single you know, television interviewed. Uh, I think he's the real deal. I think he has a great future. I think he's a great kid. Uh, as I hear from friends who know him and his parents, he's got a very good hand on his shoulders. Uh, and there's so much margin for progression. So, yeah, I think he's the real deal. Been a great clay court swing for the Italians. They did well in Rome. We've seen the emergence of Musetti. And the guy who has severely impressed here was Yannick Zinner. Yannick Sinner is the, you know, those those guys are pretty much the future of, I think, you know, tennis and what we're going to see in about, what, five years' time in the top ten. It's the Sinners, it's also Zverev, it's going to be hopefully Hugo Gaston at some time, but maybe a little bit later. Uh, it's very enjoyable, the Tsitsipas. I mean, those guys, I think, ha- all have vigor, uh, energy. Uh, fighting spirits, different games, which is very attractive to me because they're all going to have some uh, good fights and rivalry, I think, because of the different games. Um, you know, it's opposites attract, and I think that's going to be what we're going to see. See, I think Chapovalov, although he didn't do so well here, I think he ran out of steam, to be honest, and he did very well at the US Open. And I think with him, it was a question, very similar things to Dominic Team. But Chapovalov, Tsitsipas and Rublev have all emerged with great credit. Obviously, Tsitsipas and Rublev met in the quarterfinals, but they played the Hamburg final, which was very close, and they played their quarterfinal, which wasn't close, but that was only because Tsitsipas was so good. You know, seeing the young gun and seeing what they're able to do right now with the little tournaments that they had played, you know, makes them hungrier, I think, because they couldn't play. Uh, I think the older players, it, w- it was probably harder for them to have that much time off uh, because they need to have that routine. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it made things probably more interesting. We've been talking about changing of generations, changing of the guard for several years now, and it's sort of happening properly now with the emergence of players like Team and Tsitsipas and Rublev and Shapovalov. But we still have the old guard there. We still had Djokovic and Nadal in the men's singles final. Um, Where is the old guard now? Obviously, Djokovic and Nadal are still winning, but what about... um, Andy Murray and Stan Wawrinka. They met in the first round. It was a clear win for Wawrinka. People thought he was playing well and then he was found out by Gaston. Where are those two now? Well, I think I'm more worried about Andy Murray because uh, I think that the recovery of Wawrinka has been pretty exceptional of, you know, of his knee operation, but the hip operation for, you know, operations, should we say, for Andy Murray, it's, you know, it's a tough one because his, his game is based on one thing and the major thing is movement. So um, I feel for him. I think that uh, he totally deserved to have a wall card. Uh, I think we've touched on, on the subject at some point where players were not exactly agreeing. Uh, but I, uh, I think that, I'm, I mean, I'm looking forward to having him keep trying and I hope that he's healthy enough to come back to the level that we saw when he was at the U.S. Open, that match that he went five sets and you knew he, you know, it was difficult. So hopefully he's going to be back. I think Vavrinka definitely is going to keep playing. 
uh, Djokovic, Nadal, you know, the old guards. I think Djokovic is showing that he's still out there and so is Nadal, you know, but it is his best surface. Uh, Federer, question mark, is he going to be able to play a full year next year? Are we going to have a full year next year? I mean, we, we're just uncertain of many things. So many question marks, uh, but I think that, you know, in five years from now, the top 10 is going to look very different. Tournament directors are inevitably going to offer Murray a wild card if they get a chance to because he's box office they they will you know they have a three times grand slam champion two times olympic gold medalist so it makes sense economically for selling tickets or for sell, selling television viewers is it the right thing in terms of the use of wild cards to bring young players forward I think that if you have somebody like Andy Murray who achieved what he achieved and knowing the effort that he's trying to put in to come back and the love of the sport, I think there is absolutely no question that a wild card should be assigned to him. I think the young guns going to have to wait a little bit. Uh, I don't think that's going to really hurt them if they're really good and, you know, for them to make it on the, on the Pro Tour. I don't think a year is diff- is going to make a difference you know can you imagine if if he asked for next year if he's not in the top and asked for a wild card at Wimbledon I mean seriously they're not gonna Wimbledon will give it I know but that's what I'm saying but it should be at Wimbledon it should be you know anywhere in the sense that yeah he is a gold medalist he's a, a slam winner and and he's Andy Murray a guy that is out there fighting for the cause of tennis for men and women for gender equality I mean uh, he's the whole package yeah, absolutely. No, no question about that. And, and I think he will continue to get wild cards. And, and I, I, for one, wish him well, not because I'm British, but because I just think he's a good human being who um, deserves to get something out of a tremendous effort to get back. I totally agree. I couldn't agree more. One of the, the talking points at uh, Roland Garros was electronic line calling on clay. We've had it for TV but we haven't had it. The umpires still use the marks. Do you think we saw enough controversy this year that we'll probably have it, if not next year, in the next two or three years? Listen, this is a, a recurring uh, talk every year for the last five years. It's not new, and I've said it for the last five years. They have to have the technology that is good enough to have electronic uh, line calling in the sense or review uh, because it's uh, it's it's so important to have a clear mind when you're a player I think it will give a little less stress on the referees as well because that's probably one of the worst surface to uh, to be on the chair I mean it's so tangible it's appreciation of the chair empire if the ball is coming from a diagonal versus a, you know a, a straightforward play it's appreciation of the l- eyes of the referee because the, sometimes they see a mark with some kind of little leeway in between they say there's room then it's so difficult so if the technology is there use it and i heard a number of umpires this year saying i couldn't see a gap between the ball and the line therefore i have to assume the ball was in but that's illogical because the ball could have been right next to the line and still be out it's very logical but you know when you say i have to assume that's it that takes out everything and every everything for me to trust anything i have to you cannot assume we're not here to assume we're here to try to be as as close to perfection i mean we'll never have perfection although i think the players would love if there is the technology and you know we talk about the fact that the ball hits the, the clay the clay brings up some kind of dust that could trigger different appreciation of the ball in or out so until it's 
perfectly well and done and they can you know try it uh, places which they are already doing it and the players feel comfortable with it then you can't have it but once it's going to be out there i know it well daniela hantakova made the point on our podcast last week that uh, there's also an element you take away the crowd intimidation if you use uh, hawkeye or other forms of electronic review because uh, if you have a home player inevitably there will be pressure on the umpire to find that that mark was just touching or just not touching the line whereas if they just point up and it says quite clearly in or out then you take all that away and it didn't arise this year because we didn't have much in the way of crowds we had less than 10 percent crowds at uh, Roland Garros but you can imagine that uh, you you get a French player in a tight match and a dodgy call then you know whether it's for or against the French person you will diffuse a lot of the tension if you just have a a clear adjudication on the big screen Without a doubt, and we did have an even doing replays, you know, of of uh, points that could be ify, not the line, but maybe a foot fault. You know, I mean, the many players were called on foot fault this year, uh, and you know, you might, as a player, say, "Well, I'd like to see that," because first of all, as a player, you never think you're foot faulting because it's so rare to do it. Um, and, and you feel a bit silly, don't you? Because really, you shouldn't be doing it. You should stand a, a little bit further back. Yeah, I mean, well, not even that. They never do it. It's just for whatever reason, that one time they're going to do it. And they're not moving the, really their position. They're just like completely shocked for most of them. Because as a professional tennis player, I don't think, you know, I foot fault maybe when I was tired and I didn't look at where I was standing, something like this. But we've, we've had a lot. So that would be one. The other thing is, you know, the double bounce. Which begs the question, should electronic review be used for all sorts of things, not just for line calls, but for foot faults, for double bounds, possibly even for disciplinary issues? I mean, uh, it was a fairly clear-cut issue, but nobody looked at the Djokovic hitting the loose ball that hit the line umpire at the US Open on a screen before deciding whether there was uh, you know whether that ball was hit in anger or not right only the only the viewers on TV could see the replay but you're right on the court nobody saw it it was a clear thing for that event uh, that happened at the US Open but you know we had a double bounce here at 5-1 set point from Ladenovic playing against uh, Laura uh, Zygmunt and that would that was like a 20-minute set that was going to be wrapped up and, uh, you know, it was called by the chair empire that it was not a double bounce, that she got the ball. Eventually, Mladenovic lost that point, still had five set points. Don't know if she would have, you know, won or lost the match, but I, I can tell you something. Having the first set, 6-1, French player playing the way she was playing, I would have seen. I would have loved to see what happened. We'll never know. Well, it'll open up a, a whole range. I mean, we've had Hawkeye for 14 years now. Miami 06 was the first tournament. So uh, it's proved a great success. But the question is, can it be then expanded to other things? And I, I think our feeling on this one is it should be. It should be. I think you and I agree on that one. <laughs> and I suppose the final question on Roland Garros is... Did it work? I mean, it was an act of faith to play the tournament starting on the 27th of September when summer has finished, autumn has started, and the finals weekend over the 10th and 11th of October. It was an act of faith, special circumstances for this year, but was it a success? Um, I was thrilled to be at the U.S. Open. I think it's historical to be able to say, hey, I was there in 2020. I mean, I'm going to keep this in my memory. And I think, you know, as a, as the crowd was here, especially it was for those thousand people who were able to be in the stadium throughout the 15 days, uh, I think it was an exceptional 
experience for them. Uh, I think the tournament did everything right to make it as you know as workable as possible, you know, with their circumstances and and safe. Um, and you know, you have to look at it and say, you know what. A lot of people are in dyers right now. It's very difficult. Uh, I think we're all struggling with everything we're doing, and uh, it's part of what we are in as far as life right now. But I think sports is really helping people's mind to get away from the day-to-day spirit, which is really down overall uh, in the world. So I'm, I'm happy it's happening. I feel for many people out there who don't have the luxury of doing what we do, which we're very lucky, although we're taking a lot of risks, all of us, all of us, players, media, you, me, uh, we're all taking risks, but we love that sport so much that we were willing to take them, and I think it did work. Um, I think one of the big differences between Roland Garros and the US Open was that we had a small crowd, and even a small crowd made a big difference, and uh, you know, when we have the Rolex Paris Masters in uh, just a few weeks' time, a much shorter gap uh, between the end of the Grand Slam season and uh, the tournament at Paris Bercy, there will still be up to uh, a thousand people allowed in, which which will make for quite an atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, I think it was wonderful that it was a, it, they were able to have you know any any person in the, in the stands, and you know, as many players say, you know, you're only a thousand, but you're making you're making noise for pretty much fifteen or fourteen thousand seven. I think that's the the new Roland Garros uh, you know stadium, and we haven't talked even about that. I mean, the Roland Garros site has been absolutely so well renovated. They're not finished yet, but it is absolutely grand what they've done. I mean, just the media center for us. I mean, I want to sleep there. It's so beautiful. <laughs> Well, it's been very quiet this year, so it'll probably be louder in future years. Sophie Amiak, thank you very much indeed. That's it from the final Grand Slam of the year, but podcasts and tennis don't stop here. We have various tournaments, in particular the Rolex Paris Masters from the 2nd to the 8th of November, and then the Nito ATP Finals for the last time in London. Join us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn and Spotify for another podcast next weekend. But from Sophie Amiak and me, Chris Bowers, from Paris, it's bye-bye. If you like this podcast, please search the iTunes store for ATP Tennis Radio to leave a review. Review.